0: walking through the series of calling I Am, uh, because each statement Jesus made started with these two words. They weren't just any other words. They were words that, in many ways, identified himself with God. Uh, we know that because that is how God introduced himself to Moses. He said, when they ask you, Moses said, who should I tell him sent me when he went to Pharaoh? God told Moses from the burning bush, tell him I am, that I am sent you. And Jesus took that phrase and personalized it. And each time he did that, he unfolded just another degree of insight in terms of who he was, what God is like, what he is like. And each statement not only gave us insight into his character and his nature, but each statement also caused his audience to have to wrestle, to have to consider whether or not they agreed with his self-assessment. Because if they did, then they would have to reconsider every other aspect of life. That is how significant each statement was. And I'd like to suggest that the statement we're going to look at this weekend is one of the most controversial ones Jesus made. Controversial in many ways, and it caused quite a stir because what Jesus ends up doing is he ends up addressing the issue all of us must grapple with at certain points in our lives and undoubtedly in one particular instant in our life. None of us will be immune to this. came to address death itself. Something that is rather taboo to even talk about in today's culture. Because we love youth. Oh, we love it. We love it. We we really do. Maybe it's just me. But I think we live in a place where youth is celebrated. And whatever it takes, whatever it promises is the capacity to prolong it or to remain in it, or to look like it (laughs) is something we readily are open to, we embrace, we uh, move towards diets, medicinal practices, anything that would have that promise, perhaps a certain regimen. Um, You know, we live in this culture that loves youth. And on the other side of it, the polar opposite is that in many ways we consider the ending of youth, the ending of life something that is, if we could think of it this way, anathema, that is abhorrent. We'd rather not even acknowledge it. And yet we're surrounded by things that promise to delay or to solve it. And Jesus didn't come with empty promises. He came offering a solution. But his solution wasn't something Outside of him, he said he was the solution. Now that statement, in today's day and age, would cause quite a stir. If the person was found to be in his right mind, that would not be something easily tolerated. It would be very difficult. And it was no different in Jesus' day. This was a controversial claim. If you open up your handout, we'll explore the context, the setting in which he made such a claim, such a radical claim. He says in verse 1 of John 11, that a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha, and this is the Mary, John says parenthetically, who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. And so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Now, the setting we're stepping into is one of personal friendship between Jesus and a small family, two sisters and a brother, to be exact. And it's a relationship that we, we get the sense that in which it was established because Mary and Martha oftentimes hosted Jesus whenever he would travel to Jerusalem. See, Bethany is a small town outside of Jerusalem, the intellectual and religious capital of their day in that region of the world, certainly for their nation, Israel itself. And so Jesus would oftentimes make make his way there for festivals, for celebrations, for Passover would be one of them. He would teach in the temple. And it seems that he would remain, he would stay with Martha and Mary. This, by the way, some believe was not something that just occurred during his ministry, but occurred throughout the span of his life, which means the relationships Jesus had with his family may have been lifelong. And so the intimacy, the level of friendship and camaraderie, the love that was shared between them may have run quite deep. The two sisters end up calling or sending a message to Jesus, and they tell him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Now, what's interesting about this is that there's no request here. There's just information what we're being led to believe is that they, they came to the conclusion that if, they, if you could hear it this way, they didn't make a request. They just simply communicated the facts thinking that would be enough to communicate their desire. If only he finds out that he's very sick, he's sick, that will be enough. Nothing else needs to be said. That's the subtext. And so they do. They send him that message. Jesus receives it. Verse 4, when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Jesus diagnoses the situation. He hears hears of the sickness. He gets the message. He talks to his disciples, perhaps the person who sent the message, and he says, now, Lazarus' sickness is not going to end in death. He says this, and John writes this years later, John knowing actually what happened and us knowing what, what occurred as well, that Jesus, it might seem, misdiagnosed the patient because it actually turns out that Lazarus does die. He does. And so this could be a little bit confusing. It's almost like like Jesus got it wrong. But what we would understand is that what he is saying is death will not be the final word on Lazarus. That will not be the final word. That will not be the end of him. In fact, he says, this entire situation... It's really not about Lazarus. This entire situation is going to draw attention to God, and it's going to draw attention to his son, the one whom he sent, and it will be something that no one will be able to refute. And they will have to decide, but it will certainly do one thing. It will give God irrefutable glory. This entire situation, that is what it's going to do. And he says then, he says, so although, John says, although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days, which is amazing. Jesus chose to delay. And we're told John says he loved them. He loved them. That's no small thing. Jesus loved them, knew them personally, intimately, cared for them. We know later, Jesus, this is the one instance in which we see him. Clearly, he wept. He groaned with pain. And yet, in our case, we know that if somebody we love and care for falls ill, well, love always, always means no delay. Always. We'd rather drop something else and make our way there if we can. But in Jesus' case, it seems there are times love means delay. It's interesting. We're told that he continues. Finally, he said to his disciples after several days, let's go back to Judea, make our way down there. But his disciples objected, Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Um, they end up referring to an incident in which some of us who were here a week ago may remember that Jesus made a, a radical claim in which he wasn't claiming just to be a simple shepherd. He was claiming, and they understood it correctly, he was claiming to be equal, in fact, God himself himself. And the religious leaders that understanding this claim, they end up taking up stones and they end up wanting to execute capital punishment on him and they make it out alive. And the disciples hear that Jesus says, all right, let's go back to um, Judea. And they say, whoa, 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 time out. Hold on. Um, It wasn't that long ago they were wanting to kill you. Okay. We kind of barely made it out alive. You're wanting to go back there? That, is that right? And Jesus responds and you could read it yourself, but Jesus responds in a way that almost might seem cryptic. He starts talking about the hours of the day and the night, and Jesus ends up telling him, "Listen, uh, don't be afraid for me. Uh, I know when my hour is coming, but there is time left for the assignment I have to complete. The night is not here yet. I don't walk around afraid and you shouldn't be afraid for me, we will go forward, which is amazing. He tells him, essentially, he doesn't walk around with anxiety. He knows exactly what he's doing, what he's going to go into. He knows the risks. He also knows it's not his time. It's amazing confidence. And then there's this dialogue that occurs. Where Jesus ends up telling the disciples, Lazarus is sleeping. And they, he's speaking metaphorically. They misunderstand him. And they, they show their limitation. Something I enjoy because I feel so often solidarity with them. They, he says, Jesus, Lazarus is sleeping. And they say, "Oh, that's great. He's getting better. And Jesus says, no, no, you misunderstand. He's dead. He's not alive. Oh. And so they make their way. They start making their way. In verse 17, we pick up here. We, Jesus arrived at Bethany. He was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Significant number. Why? Because on the, they, they had a belief. They had an understanding that for three days, a body actually was not decomposing yet. But on the fourth day, then... The natural progression would occur and the body would begin to decompose. It was John's way of highlighting and telling everybody who would hear this account, who would read this account. There was no question. Lazarus was dead. That's what John is saying. He was in the grave for four days. Bethany, we're told in (coughs) verse 18, was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. And many of the people who had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss were there. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. See, Martha... Martha ends up making her way out to Jesus. She hears that Jesus is coming. Martha runs out. And Martha, if you could hear it this way, Martha is a woman you simply, she is found to be a woman you don't mess with. She is, um, in other portions of the gospel, she's one of the few women, that, few people Who dared do what what I'm about to explain? See, there was this incident when Jesus was in their house at another moment in their lives, and he was teaching in the house, and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening intently to what he was saying, and Martha was running around just going crazy with everything that needed to be prepared and all the things that needed to be taken care of to be proper hosts for Jesus and his 12 disciples. Grown men, by the way, no small task. And so she's doing this, and she gets upset. She gets riled up. And she can't handle it. And so she looks at Jesus at that moment, and she she commands Jesus. She tells Jesus what to do. She says, Lord, will you tell Mary to get up and do something? Now, please. Please. That's Martha, all right? That's, you don't cross Martha, okay? She was uh, one who just kind of spoke from the hip. She would shoot and then figure out, where, where did I hit, you know? Uh, where did this land? That was Martha. Martha was uh, un- incapable of hiding her heart. Uh, she had, you could think, no guile. No guile. She was real. She didn't pretend. There was no facade. And so what she does is in her grief and in her pain and in her loss she accuses Jesus. She says, "If you had only been here, why didn't you come sooner? I sent you word. I told you you're sick. Where were you?" Because if you had been here, that's raw honesty. It's, by the way, the cry of humanity itself in some way. Because at some point, everyone will find themselves saying, where were you? She says that. If you had been here, and in the same... Ac- accusation laced with pain and anger frustration and loss and grief is also something amazing if you see it it's a declaration of faith in the same breath if you had been here my brother would not have died i know it i know it it's uh it's amazing To see a person in the depth of their grief and yet have the capacity to declare trust and faith. I know you could have done something. And even now, she says, even now I know God will give you whatever you ask. You disappointed me. You weren't here on time. But Even now I know. God listens to you. I know. You see, it's a beautiful heart. One that shows grief and pain and faith all at the same time. Jesus told her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. I, I know. I know God will redeem, resurrect those who are faithful. I I know. She was espousing a a theoretical idea, an abstract reality, one that Jesus ends up saying, well, it's not abstract anymore. It's personal because it's there. And Jesus tells her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. No, Martha, you don't understand. This is not a theory. It's a person. And you're speaking to him. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live. Even after dying, they will live. They will live. This body will corrode. But there is a part of them that will live on. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. That's the statement. That's the claim. Right in the middle of grief and pain, of sorrow, in the middle of disappointment, Jesus steps in and says, I am what you are looking for, who you are looking for. I am the resurrection and the life. And after making such a claim, in the middle of her pain, in the middle of her devastation, look at the question he asks. A question, by the way, he would ask any of us. Do you believe this, Martha? I find that fascinating. They weren't having a cup of coffee philosophizing about life. They weren't speaking in terms that didn't affect them directly. Jesus was speaking in the middle of a situation that was perhaps one of the most challenging situations Martha was facing in her life. And it was there that Jesus says, Now, Right now, do you believe? Yeah, it's almost as if, let's road test this. Let's take our ideas and understandings of God or our theology and field test it. What, now, in your hour of desperation, is probably now when you most important you need to be able to answer this question, Martha. Martha, do you believe? Do you believe this? And even though she was stricken with grief, she says, yes, Lord, I I have always believed you are the Messiah, Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. I don't understand, but I believe, I believe, Jesus, we know, ends up moving past the situation towards the tomb, ends up having a somewhat similar conversation with Mary, ends up moving to the tomb, and everyone is grieving, and Jesus looks at the tomb where Lazarus is lying, and we know that he commands the stone to be rolled away. Martha of Jackson says, Lord, he's been dead four days now. Um, He's going to smell really bad. And Jesus rebuts her and says, I told you, Martha, you were going to see the resurrection, the very glory of God. Remove that stone. And Jesus does what no one has been able to do. He calls the name of a dead man. He calls Lazarus by name, and he tells him to come out. And out comes Lazarus. If that were to occur here, we would be polarized. Some would believe, "My goodness, this is amazing." Others would, something's, something's wrong. This is trickery. It's not right. Mm, what, what really happened? Where you? You were? What would happen. And you know why we know that would happen? That's exactly what happened in their day. Some believed. So, who is this? Who is this man? Others became fearful. The consequences. In fact, it got back. Word got back to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And and they started to figure out, wait, are we sure Lazarus? Yes, Lazarus was dead. And now he's alive. Yes, he was alive. And Jesus resurrected him. Oh, my. Lazarus is now irrefutable evidence of what Jesus is capable of doing. And you know what they came to the conclusion of? We must kill Lazarus. That was their conclusion. Now, here's the thing about that. Jesus just called Lazarus out from the dead. Their solution was to put him back. What would stop Jesus from just kind of, okay, let's do it again. (laughs) But that's all they had. That's the only hand they had to play. In fact, not only that, they became more concerned for their own power because they thought if there is such a man like Jesus roaming the streets, he has too much power for us. In fact, he could line up an insurrection and he could turn everything against us. Rome will come and squash us. He He will destroy everything. And so he must die. (coughs) Caiaphas says this. I asked him to put this up there. He he says the high priest ends up saying, you don't realize it is better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. John says he did not say this on his own. That's the high priest at that time. He was led to prophesy. That is, he was speaking the truth that Jesus would die for the entire nation. They wanted to crucify him, kill him to protect their power. John says they didn't realize Jesus was intentionally stepping into it to overcome by power death itself and to save an entire people. Both coincided. It's fascinating. This event caused some to declare, I believe, others to question and others not just to marginalize Jesus, to seek to silence such a man. One thing it did not do, it didn't allow anyone to simply step away and ignore what Jesus claimed. So, in the moments we have left here, I'd like us to consider the implications of this, whether we are convinced, whether we are considering, or whether we are from afar exploring. Several things are clear that Jesus claimed. Firstly, if if this is true, the resurrection means death is not the final word on our lives. That is what this means. Here's the deal. Jesus resurrected Lazarus. He restored him back to life. Lazarus ends up dying again. We know it. But if we could hear it this way, that was somewhat of a warm-up for the real event. When God would resurrect Jesus and he would never die. Um, It was somewhat of a foreshadow, an arrow pointing towards what God ultimately was going to do. That is to say that life would win. That death would not be the final note on our existence. And that changes everything. It truly does. Because, listen, if death is the final note on our existence, if truly the last calendar day on this earth is all there is, then we would be able to shout and and say with the Greeks and the Romans of the first century who claimed what Paul said, let's feast and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, let's enjoy this life. Let's just have pleasure and avoid pain and live it up. You know why? Because if there is no life after this one, there's also no consequence for a life poorly lived. There's nothing to lose. Nothing. And so why not? Why not? Let's just enjoy this life. Now, the resurrection changes that because now it puts things into perspective. Now, all of a sudden, well, the rewards could be amazing and the consequences severe for how we live this life. Causes us to question things. And it also means if the resurrection is real and true, if what Jesus claimed to be is who he is, then the res- resurrection gives us courage to pursue a virtuous life. It does. It gives us courage to pursue a virtuous life. Why is it that we need courage to pursue such life? A virtuous life, by the way, is a life of moral excellence. That's, that's what that means. The height of existence. Okay? Why? Because one of the challenges we have to face inevitably when we seek to live such a way is we have to challenge the fact that many times it can seem like the virtuous life simply does not pay off. I know, I'm not supposed to say that. But a lot of times it could seem like the virtuous life simply does not give a reward quite like the life without virtue does. We live in a world where we can become quickly disappointed with how long it takes for certain things to benefit us. Especially in a day and age where technology has made things of an instant on-demand category. The delay of virtue for us can become extremely disappointing. And not only that, we might even join we might become a little bit cynical and join the psalmist who in Psalm 73 would by the way one of the most honest psalms in the scriptures in my opinion starts off by saying listen i envy the proud because they continue to prosper. How is this possible? I envy them. They, they prosper. He says, they wear pride like a necklace. They come up with other ways to become violent and mean. They take advantage. They're greedy. And look at them. Not a care in the world. They have all they want. No worry. Look at them. They look so strong. They, they win. Hey, you know what he's saying? He's saying what many of us have heard sometimes. The nice guy finishes last. And the psalmist is saying, what is this? Why? How is this possible that in this world that is the case? That it's the cruel that is on top? How? He was addressing a tension point. A real one. We have to acknowledge is there. Because sometimes it actually does look like the shortcut gets gets you there faster. I know. I'm not supposed to say that. But doesn't it sometimes look like the shortcut gets you there faster? And the truth of the matter is, we may not see, but we have certainly experienced at some point in our lives that the shortcut may get us there faster. But what we were shooting after was like the wind. It looked like it was right there, but once we grasped for it, it was gone. Simply a mirage. Nothing of real substance. And we get end up leaving, felt much more empty than we began, much weaker than we began, much not, not at all stronger. We become... People who start to feel like shells of of people, shells of a person. But it was Jesus who said, everyone who believes in me will never, ever die. They will have life. They will have real life. What does that mean? That means, if we can hear it this way, that what we see here is that if we have ever felt like virtue may be beyond our reach, like there is a tension where we want what is good and right, but at the same time, we want what is wrong and bad and we feel conflicted and trapped, if we feel at any point in our lives like we may actually be beyond the capacity for virtue, then we are actually feeling just like Lazarus felt in the tomb. Incapable of life. Incapable of doing anything. about You know what? He was in the most helpless situation possible. What could he do? Nothing. And I don't know about you, but there have been times when we might feel in our lives like there are areas in our lives if we were to be honest, gut-wrenching honest, areas that are dead. No matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we try to do, we simply cannot see life birthing inside of us. And it is there. It is there that Jesus steps in and he says, listen, he is, I am the resurrection and the life. It is there that he calls the name of those who would hear him. And when he calls our name, virtue breathes out of us. And the dead places in our heart are now starting to be filled. And we start to see that there may be areas inside of us that he is able to breathe new life into. We start to see nobility start to rise up within us. Dignity start to be restored and strengthened. Strength of character. We start to see loyalty develop inside of us. We see resilience and agility to navigate the issues of this life. We hear and we see endurance develop within us and it becomes part of us, not because we have attained to it, but because the resurrection of the life has spoken our name. And now, we see love that remains, steadfast love. And when we hear the resurrection and the life speak our name, well, then that should give us courage. Because now, if he gives us what we could never attain, then no one could take it from us. And every step in that direction in the direction of what he says is right, is a step in which we lock arms with the one who overcame death itself. you see it? Virtue wins out. It does. And there may be times where we may not see it, but he wants to do it first inside of our heart because there will be a day when he will return and he will do it not just inside of our heart, but listen, the promise he gives is there will be a day when all that is wrong will be made right. He does. And all that is unjust will be corrected. And mercy will rush through like a living river. And justice would flow from the mountain heights. That is the truth. And labor in virtue will produce fruit immediately. That is the promise. Sorrow and grief will be removed pain and suffering be removed, which means every step we take is one taken towards the beautiful inevitability. Life will win. Life will win. And if that's the case, then we have the capacity to have hope in this life that no darkness can overcome no darkness can overcome. It is a hope that God is more powerful than our darkest night. It is a hope that the light is able to shine in the darkest moments of our lives. If he was able to overcome death, what can't he overcome? He is able to rush through us and even give us a sense of strength in the midst of our trial and in the midst of our grief. Listen, it will be a hope that is able to carry us sometimes when we cannot walk. It will be a hope that is able to comfort us when we are just sorrowful and in pain. It will be a hope that reminds us this too will pass. This is not permanent. No. What will be permanent is more beautiful than we could ever imagine. It is a hope that reminds us this too will be corrected. It is a hope that reminds us this too will be overcome. Indeed, it has already been overcome. It is a hope that will give us the capacity to say with Paul when he said, and I asked him to put this up there, we have this treasure, this spirit inside of jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way. We're not crushed. Perplexed, confused, never in despair. Persecuted, yes, not forsaken. Struck down. But you know where we're not? We are not destroyed. We are not. So all they could do is kill the man, but they could not take his life. They could not. He returned promising life, life that is abundant life that is real, life that is able to strengthen us. See, Jesus didn't come saying, I remove suffering. No, he did something even better. He said, I will give you extremely strong capacity to endure and to be kept in the midst of your suffering. I will give you strength, hope, nothing can snuff out. That is his promise. And so when we find ourselves wondering and crying out, who is able to give me hope, real hope, not hope that disappoints, lets me down, not a false bag of goods, not a hot air promise? Who is able to give me hope that actually matters and delivers? We can hear him say, I am. I am, because I am the resurrection and the life. I've overcome death itself for you. May that be the case. May that be the case in our own lives, in our own hearts. May that be the case through our weeks. May that be what we live into. We're going to receive our time of giving, our closing song, I'm just going to pray, ask for his blessing over this time. And um, so, Lord, we thank you that you, uh, you came to address the most fundamental of human needs. We thank you that you came with real power, not just empty words. And I pray, God, that you would give us the capacity to embrace you as the one who speaks our name and calls life to form inside of us and come out through us. I pray that the areas in our own soul, God, that may be dried up, that may be weary, or perhaps may be lifeless, I pray, Jesus, that we would hear you speak life into us, virtue to form inside of us, strength to flow through us, I pray you give us courage to grab a hold of your promise and to be able to have hope that nothing, nothing is capable of removing. I pray you would be our resurrection and our source of life. I pray for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.